Hi, welcome to the world between us. This podcast is basically just an excuse for me to talk to interesting people. Today on the show is Jerome Phelps. He's a strategy and advocacy consultant. He formerly was a director of International Detention Coalition and Detention Action. Our interview is based on this piece that he wrote for Detention Forum. Um, and it's really fascinating. It's a kind of history of the last 10 years of the struggle against immigration detention in the UK and the the development of alternatives and all of that. So some of our chat will be based on 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 that piece, which I'll link on the show notes. Enjoy the chat. I guess I just wanted to start with the biggest biggest possible question I can think of, uh, which is for listeners who are not aware, can you explain what immigration detention in the UK is like? Absolutely. Immigration detention centers are, they're basically prisons. Some of them are former prisons. Others are recently built by the Home Office to look and feel identical to high, usually high security prisons. But the difference is that they're not they're built to hold people serving criminal offenses. They're uh, built to hold migrants who've um, either been refused the, the right to stay in Britain or lost it or are sometimes even having their asylum claim considered. So they're, they're called immigration removal centres. They're meant to be for um, people to be who are being removed from the UK, but often people can't be removed and can find themselves locked up in what is basically a prison for very long periods. What's the injustice what, uh, in the system? Like, what, what's not working? Where is that, um, that part coming into it? What's different about UK immigration detention to the rest of Europe, for example, is that there's no time limit. This is indefinite detention. If you commit a crime, if you're sentenced by a judge, you know why you're there, you know what you did, and you know, in most cases, how long you're going to be locked up. And there's, there's a logic to it. If you're a migrant in immigration detention, none of that applies. You're put there by one immigration officer, a junior civil servant. Uh, there's no automatic uh, judicial review oversight. And you don't know when you're going to get out. You could be there for a day. You could be there for a year. You have no idea. And sometimes in the past, we were working with people who were there for three, four, some, as much as seven years without wow. knowing when they're going to get out. That is something that only the UK does in Europe. That is what is so incomprehensible, so unjust about immigration detention. Um, it, it seems like somehow in this whole issue has managed to go kind of under the radar uh, pretty significantly for the kind of general population. How did that happen? Like, what is is that a correct assessment? Is it just where I am? But how how has this developed into what it is? Well, I think it's evolved. I think it's um, huh. certainly 10 years ago when um, people really started campaigning on this, it was just not an issue. No one knew about it. No one cared about it. You could tell politicians, unless they were Jeremy Corbyn or John McDonnell, they weren't interested. Slightly less so in Scotland, actually. There was always, there was always solid Scottish grassroots and political opposition to Westminster building detention centres in Dungavel, in fact, outside uh, Langakshire. Uh, but 
elsewhere it just didn't have any traction. It was rarely in the news. Um, it was only ever reported when there was a, a disturbance. So it, people just weren't getting it. That and that has over the last ten that over the last few years that has changed. And it's certainly it's not a doesn't have as much of a public awareness as perhaps it should. Um, but that's also partly because the government is the government's attitude has also changed. The government is moving away from this reliance on detention. Um, five, 2013, um, the UK had the largest detention estate in Europe. Um, it had 4,000 people locked up every night in these basically prisons. Uh, and they published plans that they wanted to expand to 5,000 places because they that was what they said they needed to maintain our borders and deport people with no right to be here. That has changed dramatically. By uh, the end of last year, the, first, the last data we have before lockdown, there were down, it was down to 1,600 people in detention. So that's a reduction of 60% at a time when much of the rest of the world is increasing detention and there's been obviously one or two political focuses on immigration in that in the meantime it's not like the immigration situation's gone away and that and in fact since lockdown there's that's got down to about 300 people in detention so something quite dramatic has shifted over that seven years and it's interesting so i'll link to this piece in the notes for the show but you you wrote the the article that you wrote on detention forum you talk about 2015 being that kind of tipping point where then detention centers removal centers started closing and and all of that changed what what was the tipping point like how did this happen i think uh, two things well uh, overall what happened was civil society campaigners ngos communities people with experience of detention lawyers started sitting down together and really thinking about how to change this. We started reflecting that I've been working on this since 2002 and for years we got nowhere. We did all these policy reports um, collectively. We had the evidence. We could show how appalling the impact on individuals' lives, individuals' mental health. We could show how it wasn't even working for government. No one cared. We got nowhere. So we started to really think about what we needed to do to change the politics of this. It wasn't an issue where you could just present some nice rational arguments and government policy would change. So really, the two things we did was we we sat down and came up with a strategy, a plan. Um, So we had a a planning session um, where we, we thought of, we tried to think about the process to get from where we were to government moving away from detention. It was terrible. We had we knew none of the people that could influence the people who could make the change, right. being the minister and the civil service. Yes. So it was depressing as hell at that point. Um, but we worked out this plan of how, um, how we needed to get a lot more people interested in this, and not just in London or even Scotland, but people across the country, communities, talking to their parliamentarians, talking to their faith leaders, uh, talking to the kinds of voices in society that could have an impact on how government sees detention. Right. And it's it's an interesting topic because it comes to that kind of 
theory of how how things change and how how do, how do you build a movement and something you mentioned in the piece was you know that those voices of people who had experienced detention themselves uh being really essential for this this building of this kind of snowballing of of a movement uh, absolutely yeah. absolutely it was it was essential in in the past people in detention were in the public spotlight when they when there was a disturbance and you would get occasionally they'd be on the news um, with a helicopter flying over a detention center and um, people waving a flag or something that was that was it um, or else they were in the news because they were being talked about as dangerous foreign criminals or illegal asylum seekers or or else um, innocent victims by NGOs that was no in my view no more helpful what changed was when um, working with communities NGOs not not on their own but migrants started stepping up as experts experts by experience people who know what detention's really like who can talk about what needs to change from the point of their own their own lives their own stories and that's um, that immediately changed it because you can if you, you can th you can think about locking up somebody indefinitely if they're a sort of an abstraction over there um, they're not the same color probably they're they're an they're a migrant they're an, an other uh, but what if you're if, even if you're a politician if you're sitting down talking to talking to somebody who's saying I was locked up for three years in detention this is what it did to me and this is what needs to change because and these are the reasons why it needs to change that's very different they're already that's a human being who's you're having an equal conversation with and it's no longer possible for them to be treated in ways that British citizens it would be unimaginable yeah yeah that's that's fascinating and it's and it resonates so much with the broader conversation on immigration because even on the whole channel thing and the news from that this last couple of months it's it's amazing how you know the people who are crossing the channel are treated like uh, like an object like an abstract kind of concept while we have the conversation and absolutely. yeah that's including their voices is so important absolutely they're invaders you've got the the journalist in the foreground on the boat and their their little figures on in the background invading our shores it's or else they're big red arrows on a, a, gra a graphic map somewhere it's we have as pe we all have ways of blocking out other human beings and that's what enables all of us to potentially do bad things and politicians particularly to feel like this is a group that i can ignore yeah yeah absolutely what um what are the alternatives to detention so i know that different kind of alternatives have been proposed but if if all detention centers were to close tomorrow um what could be done instead this was crucial part of the change i think that we weren't just talking about um there shouldn't be any detention we were saying that but we were also all saying instead to the government this is how you can meet your policy objectives without using detention there are alternatives to detention that have been used very successfully around the world that respect migrants dignity that um, allow them to resolve their cases in the community um, with by accessing legal advice by having support stability then that gives people much, going through immigration processes 
better chance of understanding the process they're in um, and making long-term um, decisions, plans. And amazingly, it's if from the government's point of view, if they treat migrants like human beings, if they let them um, under, have a fair system where which they understand and they can make decisions, they're much more likely to comply with the immigration rules, they're much more likely to comply with refusals if they are refused. It stops being perceived by migrants as a, a system that's just out to punish and detain and deport them. And, and can you talk a little bit about how the system works today? Because that's a that's a big feature of it that it's it's very impenetrable on how you might like try and appeal or try you know and all of that. Like what what is that the situation right now in terms of people who are being affected by this understanding the system that they're in? It's it's pretty complex the the UK immigration system. There's there's lots of different routes into detention. Lots of different. Um, situations that can get you detained. So uh, often you've um, been an asylum seeker and you've been refused asylum. Sometimes you've, um, and you can appeal to the courts and if the, um, generally it's if the courts refuse your asylum, uh, then you you can be put in detention. Back in the day, in, until 2015, the government had a huge scheme called the Detain Fast Track, where they just fairly randomly put lots of asylum seekers in detention from the start of the process and refused almost all of them and deported them all. So one of the things we did was a legal challenge that after several years of litigation, the courts um, ruled that this was unlawfully unfair. So there was some, um, there was some legal um, compulsion that forced the government away from aspects of detention. The other, and the other, another major group of people who are, who get detained are people who've uh, who have previous criminal convictions. So some of them will have been living for years um, lawfully in Britain. Others might be asylum seekers or more more recent migrants without status. But if you if you commit an offence, you can lose your your right to remain, even if you've come as a baby, lived your whole life in Britain, think you're British. If you don't have a British passport, you're potentially liable to be detained and deported. So we'd have some of these kids with Yorkshire accents who'd gone to school here and lived their whole life here, never bothered to get a passport, then discover suddenly that actually they're not British after all. They're Liberian. And of course, Liberia doesn't want to accept them because Liberia doesn't think they're Liberian either so they can then get stuck for for years in detention yeah wow that's yeah you can't even imagine being an adult and having to go to a country that you've never yeah. been to and yeah make life there they are meant to, people are meant to have uh, translation translators and have it explained but if you're what often happens is that um, you can be picked up in the middle of the night they're, they can be even looking for someone else and dis- discover that you're you don't have your papers, and you're suddenly you're in the back of a, a truck heading to a detention centre where, where you arrive in the middle of the, five in the morning. Uh, so even if you're given information, you're often too just too stressed, distressed, um, traumatised by the experience of being arrested for the first time in your life, perhaps, um, to to take that information in. 
there's really no there's no nice way to lock someone up in a high security detention center and tell them they're being deported yeah absolutely um so a couple of questions looking to the future it looks like a positive change in the last five years and a kind of good direction of 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 travel like like you said in the in the article is it how positive are you about that like is the fight almost over in terms of that like is is the future bright in terms of like okay we see yarls would you know potentially being repurposed and, and closing do you think we'll see an end of the type of immigration detention we have in the UK right now in the near future? I think we're making progress. I think we've we've won a battle in that there's a there's 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 an atmosphere of detention reform that the government accepts it's a problem. The government is now sort of apologizing for it. Not apologizing, but saying, yeah, we do we detain, but we also do these alternatives to detention with civil society. They've started these pilot projects now. They're, clo- they're promised to close Morton Hall in Lincolnshire. They've temporarily closed Yarlswood, the detention centre for women. They are consistently reducing um, for se- several years now the amount of people they lock up. Does that mean that we can all relax and just wait for it to, um, to finish? Absolutely not. It's politics. There's... Um, one or two other things going on in British politics right now it's make everything very unpredictable. There will still be a driver for the government to be deporting people unless they uh, massively expand their, and improve their use of alternatives so that everyone can just be in the community until they resolve their cases. Then they're going to still feel they, they they're going to still want to have some detention space um, to in order to deport people and there's going to be um, a lot of conflicting pressures around immigration um, there the needs to be we're in a good place at the moment because communities migrants NGOs parliamentarians conservative parliamentarians um, are interested in this issue and are pushing still for the government to introduce a time limit which has been a key focus of campaigning for years. We still don't have a time limit. The the Home Office refuses still to follow the rest of Europe and limit the amount of time it can lock someone up. So that that campaign carries on. It's a campaign that while it hasn't achieved its end of a time limit, but is, I think, pushing the government to reduce detention. And it needs to continue if we're going to gradually edge towards um, minimal or no detention. And I think the pandemic is is an opportunity here because they can't deport um, people other than to a very small number of mostly European countries. There are very few people in detention now. This is going to be the big question as we all rebuild for the new normal, whether it just goes back to um, back to um, January 2020 and they reopen the detention centres that are empty, or whether as part of shifting into a better way of doing things, we can take advantage of the, the, the government having done more or less done without detention for this period and try and get them onto a different track to, to treat all migrants with, with humanity as human beings. Yeah. 
because it feels like it's um, the the immigration conversation in general was so toxic and especially I would say especially right now but it feels like it's just seasons of that coming over coming up over and over but you know even the uh, asylum seekers right now being detained you know and there's been a, a push for like petitions and all of that stuff around children being detained and from who are seeking asylum um, it feels like it's so toxic that it could at any point snap back to something as bad as before, if not worse. So yeah, it just feels very volatile right now. It's really volatile. The one major advantage we have is that detention centers are really expensive and really inefficient because the majority of people they detain, they end up releasing. So it, from their own value for money point of view for the home office, it's really inefficient and it's not a great moment to be pouring lots more money into inefficient um, um, technologies. So I think we have, in a sense, I, the way that they've been um, demonizing and getting the right-wing press onto the, a tiny number of desperate people in the channel is um, appalling. But it's this is gesture politics. They're not really planning to do anything very structural about it as far as we can tell the hope is that uh, best case scenario is probably that the the toxic immigration debate carries on being toxic in in these sort of small gestures and obviously in brexit which is the the big one and that does free up some space for civil society communities to push push in these sort of smaller niche issues like detention and make some real yeah. real progress there right that's yeah and that was another fascinating thing about your piece is that they don't they don't even acknowledge that there, there's no limit to detention right there's so rhetorically they could never say we're closing detention centers they can just like without saying anything keep depurposing them and, and taking them out the back door there's definitely something around um for a campaigner, it's fascinating. There's definitely something around they are less likely to do something if you've got a very high profile demand that they do it. The dynamic for the last five years is we we and our friendly parliamentarians beat them over the head with demanding a time limit. And they say, no, we don't do indefinite detention. Um, we detain for the shortest possible time. And it's all great, but let's, we're closing another detention centre. So I do wonder if we'd if we'd demanded that they close detention centres, maybe they'd have put in a time limit instead. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it. God, it's it's fascinating. It's really interesting. What can people listening uh, do about it if if they are not familiar with this issue or very kind of uh, generally familiar with it? Is there anything that people can do in response to to support this fight? What what people can do is. Um, get in, get follow on um, social media, detention forum, or any of the other organisations working on on this. There's going to be a big uh, annual campaign push around the end of the year called Unlocked around um, gather, getting social media momentum um, to show that people in communities care and to show it to politicians, to MPs, because the way this is working is that so many MPs are hearing in their constituencies that actual people who are not not NGO people like me care about detention and want there to be less of it. And that, that means they politicians feel like they'll get some credit 
it won't win them vote. It won't get make them popular with all of their constituents. But if a few people praise them for doing it, then they're much more likely to go to a debate and call for a time limit. So we need we need that national mobilisation, which just comes often comes down to individuals around the country. Um, sending a tweet, writing a letter to their MP. Small things have really added up in this campaign. You can find Jerome at Jerome G. Phelps on Twitter. And I'll be sure to link on the show notes for a few other organizations that you can follow uh, to support the struggle against immigration detention uh, and join on future campaigns. They're also really good at offering um resources in terms of writing to your MP or signing petitions and all sorts of things. So check out the show notes and, and follow some of those places and hashtags and accounts. You can also follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at World Between Pod. We're available in pretty much everywhere that offers podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes, uh, and wherever it is that you're listening, please review us. Uh, that's a great way for people to hear about the show and, and, and for word to get out there. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.